Welcome to the Work Hard, Play Hard podcast. My name is Rob Murgatroyd, and I'm a former doctor turned lifestyle entrepreneur. Each week, I interview some of the best minds on the planet on the science of achievement and the art of fulfillment. Come take this journey with me. Excuses are over. It's time to live. I think there's different points and times in our lives where we're more driven by our ego and what we're seeing around us than actually doing things purposefully the way that we want to do things. And I can proudly say that I have not folded one hand that I've ever been dealt. I've always taken a look at the hand and tried to figure out how I can best make that work for myself to progress myself forward. Each and every day when people realize they have the choice of how they want to feel every day is one of the greatest powers that we all possess. Okay, before we jump into this interview, I want to invite you to be considered for my 2019 Traveling Mastermind. So go to workhardplayhardmastermind.com and fill out the application and we'll jump on a call to see if you're a great fit. This year, we'll be in Boston doing lots of cool things like training with Tom Brady's trainer, Alex Guerrero. In the middle of the year, we'll be heading to Monaco doing things like vintage car rides through the French Riviera. And then we're going to wrap the year in Florence, Italy, doing things like truffle hunting and hot air ballooning over Florence. Look, Life is all about fulfillment, and I really try and walk the walk. So if you are looking to be part of our tribe of 28 high-achieving entrepreneurs that are in the six- and seven-figure range, fill out your application at workhardplayhardmastermind.com to be considered. So think of the mastermind as having two parts. The first is the trip itself. And the second part is what goes on over the four days within the mastermind. Our group of 28 entrepreneurs will help you brainstorm and accelerate what you want to achieve in 2019. And we'll do that through a variety of different exercises, brainstorming activities, breakout sessions, goal setting sessions, you know the drill. So go to workhardplayhardmastermind.com, fill out an application, and we'll jump on a call to see if you're a fit. All right, let's jump into today's episode. What's up, everybody? This is Rob Murgatroyd, and welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard show. This episode features Scott Aaron. You can find him on Instagram and elsewhere at scott.aaron.33. How about that for an Instagram handle? Scott is a good buddy who has taught me so much about resiliency on one end of the spectrum and how I can use LinkedIn on the total polar opposite end of the spectrum. So in this conversation, we talk about everything from what it was like for him when he found out that his dad was sentenced to federal prison and how he had to be the man of the house at such a young age. We also talked about how people are not fully embracing LinkedIn and using it. They're using it like Facebook and it shouldn't be used like Facebook because it's not Facebook. It was not intended to be used that way. And he teaches us how we can use it and leverage it. And we also talked about how he has found peace in being an open book with all of the successes and failures in his life. So, Who is Scott? Scott is the go-to specialist when it comes to using LinkedIn and building personal brands. His program has helped 
thousands of entrepreneurs and individuals experience explosive growth following his program, LinkedIn Accelerator. So strap in and be sure to take a screenshot of this episode, share it on the socials, and remember to tag me and Scott and let us know what you thought of the episode. So without further ado, please enjoy this conversation I had with Scott Aaron. Scott, welcome to the show. Rob, thank you for having me on the show. I like that pause right between the Rob and the thank you. It was nice. It <laughs> had me on the, I could tell you're a professional speaker. It had me on the end of my seat. <laughs> wow. You know, grabbing people's attention is everything. Uh, the pregnant pause, as they say. I am super excited to have you on the show. So thank you. Thank you for taking the time. Absolutely just honored and grateful to be a part of this and, and to provide some content, value, and, and anything to obviously leave people better. I am happy to do that. And thank you for this opportunity. Of course. So listen, you know, the show is going to have basically three parts. The show is going to be all about working hard and playing hard, which loosely translated really means the science of achievement and the art of fulfillment. So first, we're going to talk about the science of achievement and how you've been able to crush LinkedIn and use it in a way that I've never seen anybody do what it is that you do. And then we'll move into the art of fulfillment. And we'll talk about maybe some practices and tips and hacks, et cetera, that you have and do to be more fulfilled. And then we'll wrap up with some rapid fire questions. Cool? Absolutely. I'm ready. All right. I want to talk a little bit about background. I think uh, a good jumping off point would be to talk about growing up in Philadelphia. And for the uninitiated, can you paint a picture for us of what it's like growing up in a Jewish household <laughs> and what are the positives and what are the negatives? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And, and for any of the Jewish listeners, uh, when you grow up in a traditional Jewish household, that that typically means you have a very overbearing mother, which uh, she still is to date. Uh, I I still have to. <laughs> I, I mean, it's true that I'll be forty in two weeks, and I, I still have to email her my itinerary when I'm flying, and I have to text her as soon as I land to let her know I'm safe. So once <laughs> and, an if you, overbearing- and if you ate, and if you ate too, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what did you have? How did it taste? Where did, did you go? Yeah, the, the land of questions. So what what the, the good thing about that is I, I grew up in a very loving household. So it was a lot of a lot of love, a lot of warmth. But in the same time, when you have a when you grow up in an overbearing family, I I tended to resort to my family fighting my battles for me instead of me fighting my own battles. So if something came up, I would run to my parents, they would help me, they would fix it, and I would move on. So over time, this created a, a codependency in, in every aspect of my life. Uh, I was never able to fight my own battles. I definitely had low self-esteem, low self-confidence, and inevitably, that ended up transcending into me being the one guy, kid, adolescent, teenager in the group that was picked on. So I was an easy target because they knew they can get away with it because I wasn't going to do anything except tell my parents. So I never stood up for myself. So for the better part of my entire childhood up until high school, even into high school, uh, I, was, I was pretty badly 
bullied and picked on by my peers and by my friends. Mm, what are the positives? So the positives is that there's a turning point. And, and I, I, remember, I remember actually one of the turning points where I realized that I had the power to, to achieve certain things. And it was funny. It was my senior year of high school. And I don't know why this is coming up now, but it's coming up now because I think it's a great question. Because most people see bullying as a negative, but you're right, there are positives in everything. And I remember I was in public speaking class. It was one of my favorite classes, loved it. And I've naturally been able to, to speak in front of people. I never get nervous. It's just one of those things I love doing. And there was this, this kid in my class, I remember his name was Adam. And he was actually bullied and picked on when we were growing up in middle school. He was different. Uh, he was definitely into kind of like the uh, like punk scene, so he was definitely seen as as different in in growing up. And he started to return the favor of what others were doing to him, and he started picking on me, and pretty bad in this class. He was a bigger guy, much bigger than me. I'm you know I'm I'm five nine, and I was maybe 135 pounds soaking wet. And I remember he was, he was literally, he walked by me and he, he punched me in the stomach for no reason. And normally I would be that kid that would just crawl up into a ball and, you know, run and tell the teacher or just kind of keep to myself and just really just put my tail between my legs. But this, this moment was different. And I don't know why this moment was different, but it was. And I stopped him and I grabbed him by the shirt collar. And I literally jacked him up against the wall. And I said, if you ever put your hands on me again, I will break your face. And I let go. And that was the last time that he ever bothered me ever again. I love it. You, you took your power back. I did. And, and you know, again, I, I don't want people to misconstrue that as like anger or anything like that, but I needed to make a point. And as, as a 17 year old, you know, quote unquote, breaking your face was basically the only way that you can get across to someone to leave me alone. That's the, the teenage way of saying that. And he never did. So I did, I, I, I took my power back. So it took all those years of getting picked on to finally move past that. But it's funny you, you say that because it brings up another story where the first book I ever wrote was about two and a half years ago called Good Guys Always Win. I self-published it. It took me about a year to put together. And the reason why I said good guys always win is that I was the good guy in the group, Rob, where you know I was in the friend zone with all the girls. I was you know friends with all of them, but I was no challenge you know, I didn't really have any quote unquote game. So I was friends with everybody. But, you know, as you get older, you know, that definitely plays in, in your favor as I, I experienced. But I remember I was 13 or 14 years old and I was at a friend's birthday party. And it was a, it was a cold fall day. And my friends thought it would be funny to lock me outside because I was wearing short sleeves and, and pants. So I would be cold. And they did. They locked the door. And, you know, I was out on this porch by myself and another couple of my friends thought it would be really, really funny if they would actually go and dump a bucket of water on me to make sure that I was even colder, which they did. 
And I actually spoke about this story and wrote about it in my book. And it was really funny, not haha funny, but how kind of things come full circle. A buddy of mine sent me a text message about a month after I released the book. And he texted me and he said, Scott, for whatever it's worth, I'm sorry for anything that I ever did to you that hurt you. Because the story was about him and a couple of the other people involved. But sometimes it takes turning the mirror around on someone, even through a story, to make them realize maybe they did things that were not kind to others. And again, I appreciated his apology. I told him it, you know, it w- wasn't necessary, like we've hung out for years since then. But it's people sometimes don't realize their actions and how they could cause other people to feel. So I definitely learned as I went through life that you can take your power back by just standing up for yourself and what you believe in. And, and I think that's one of the positives of actually going through bullying is that you learn how to stand up for yourself. I love that, you know, and even, even the other thing that we started with, which is the, you know, sort of the Jewish culture. I didn't grow up, I grew up around a lot of Jewish people, but I wasn't, I'm not Jewish, but in Queens, it was either like, you know, you're either Jewish or Italian, Italian, Jewish or Catholic. And I recently took a trip to Israel and I got to tell you, man, I fell in love with the, uh, it's, it's called Shabbat, right? Friday night. Yep. Friday night Shabbat. I fell in love with that experience. It was just incredible because the streets, everybody stops working. Everybody is, uh, you know, they should be home, but they're not. They're, you know, they're out. Um, but there's there's this really cool celebration at the end of every week that I just thought was really, really cool. So um, I'll be uh, I'll be the surrogate you for this podcast. <laughs> That's, and, you know, uh, welcome to the tribe. And uh, welcome to the tribe. My uh, my father grew up in a uh, in in a uh, a conservative uh, Jewish household. So you know mm. my my father you know my 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 great grandfather fled Eastern Europe in the 1920s and came to Philadelphia. You know, with obviously my my grandfather and my great uncles and my great aunt, and he became a, a butcher in in South Philadelphia. And so I come from a bloodline of entrepreneurs, my great grandfather, my grandfather, my dad and me. And, you know, my father practiced, uh, you know, Shabbat every single Friday night. He kept kosher in the house. My mom was a more reformed Jew, which means she just celebrated the holidays, typically the way that myself and my sister were raised. But my great aunt, um, who's still alive, she's uh, 80, 87 years old, lives in downtown Philly, still does Friday night Shabbat every single Friday and, and time to time myself and my sister will go over there and celebrate with her and it, it, it's a it's a beautiful culture it really is it's a very you know I haven't been to Israel yet and that's such a bad bad such a bad Jew I need to go to my homeland eventually I will get there but what when people go to Israel and you and I were talking about this actually is that there's different sides of the wailing wall where you have all different religions all around there. So it's, it's really the, the cultural and religious center of the world all different cultures, all different religions, you know, go to Jerusalem and, and everyone is welcome. Everyone is celebrated and it, it's hard to describe. I've never been there, but I can imagine, but being a Jew and, and knowing what it's all about religiously um, it, it's such a beautiful experience to be in a place where everyone truly, you know, is welcome in this little central area. 
All right, so let's let's move on a little bit to uh, to the college years, and I want to kind of take you back to that uh, that college time in your life. And the show is really about learning from our guests. And some stories are about inspiration, and you know, others are cautionary tales. And if you're open to discussing it, can you take us back to the moment that you found out that your dad was going to federal prison, and maybe? Tell us um, what led up to those events. I'm an open book in, in every aspect of my life because I believe that everyone has a story inside of them that could impact and influence someone else and, and have them feel like they're not alone because a lot of people hold so much inside that you know you really, by sharing a story, could really help someone. And that's why I always tell my, my story so candidly. So... I was 18 going on 19. I was finishing my, my freshman year at the University of Pittsburgh, uh, having just the, the great college life that a lot of people have, joined a fraternity, had lots of friends. It was, I'm a very social person. So of course, my grades were not good, but my social life was amazing. And I, I remember coming home that summer and my father, who was a serial entrepreneur, had multiple businesses had kind of left all of them behind to step into the physical rehabilitation profession, partnering with someone with an existing business. And things were going well from the outside looking in. And about a year in, which was the, the summer after my freshman year, I was home. My sister was uh, 16. Uh, again, I was 18 going on 19. And my father, as we normally did, we would have little cookouts in the backyard during the summertime. My mom loved to barbecue, just the four of us. Very, very tight-knit family, family dinners every night. And my dad said, I, I need to talk to you guys. So my father explained to us that things were not going as planned or as expected with this new business venture. And there were some problems insurance-wise, and the federal government was actually stepping in to look into things. And my father let us know that there is a potential, he is cooperating, but there was the potential that he could get on house arrest, which even that Rob right there just literally just shook me to the core. The fact that you know my father would be in that much trouble that he would be on house arrest, which means go to work, come home for X amount of months or years, whatever it was. So as the case proceeded and as my father cooperated with the federal government, it became more and more clear that things were not going the way that my father had thought or they were intended to go. I had to write letter, uh, a letter to the judge telling him all about my father and what he meant to me. But it really didn't hit me until the day of his sentencing. And it, it's, you know, it, it's so stereotypical. You know, uh, Federal courtrooms are, are dark and they're dingy and they're all wood cold, just just a, a very, very unmotivating environment, so to speak. And I, I knew things weren't going to go as expected because I looked to my right. You know, I was sitting behind my father on the left-hand side of the courtroom, and I turned to my right, and my own flesh and blood family was sitting on the opposite side opposing my father in this case. And that's when I knew something wasn't right. The second moment was when the judge, during the sentencing, gave my father the opportunity to speak. And this was probably 
one of the most gut-wrenching moments of, of this time for me, seeing my father break down and cry. And I, I haven't, you know, my, my father is a very strong individual. He's a, he's a big guy. And seeing him weeping, pleading for his freedom and his life, it, it shook me. It shook me to the core. I remember it like it was yesterday. And when all was said and done, the judge then sentenced my father to 24 to 36 months in federal prison. So as an 18 going on 19-year-old, my teenage years were done. It, that, that was it. And that was probably, we talk about brain tattoos, where there's impactful moments in your life that you will never forget. The taste, the smell, you can close your eyes and it was like it was yesterday. And I use this example with people. And whenever I ask people, where were you on 9-11? Every single person that was emotionally or personally affected by that can recall exactly where they were on 9-11. That is a brain tattoo that most of us will carry with us for the rest of our lives. And that moment in that courtroom when my father was sentenced to 24 to 36 months in federal prison. That is a brain tattoo and a moment in my life that I am never going to forget till the day I die. No, there's no question about it. So just a couple of questions just for clarity. So basically he was, it was an insurance situation where there was, was it a billing that was improper or something like this? Correct. Exactly. It was, you know, the, the guy that he had partnered with was a, had a, a, a previous criminal record that my father was unaware of. And this guy was trying to, uh, quote unquote, cook the books a little bit by billing insurance companies for services that were, were not being performed. So basically collecting a lot of money from the insurance companies when people were coming in for something else. And uh, it ended up being almost a, um, an eight-figure case. Mm. And uh, it, it, was, it was big. And, you know, it, it's funny, the, my dad's lawyers actually painted the picture for me so I can understand. And they said, Scott, you know, uh, imagine this, the NBA draft, where the number one pick, that's the most valuable person in the draft. That is the main guy, not my father, but the owner of the company. They said, your father's like the third or fourth pick in the draft. So my dad was pretty high up there as far as those that were involved, you know, in the severity of this case. So what you happened know, to the lessons. other guys? Uh, the main guy actually got nine years, mm. but also in the process of being sentenced and awaiting, actually committed a another another crime and ended up getting another three and a half years on top of that. So he ended up doing about thirteen years. Um, the guy above my dad and below that guy got about seven years, and then there were some people below my father, two or three people that got. Uh, some got anywhere between twelve to to six months in federal prison, but my dad got the got the third highest sentence. So now here you are. You got this. You basically get this bombshell that's dropped in your lap. You're at a young age. You have to go through the courtroom that you just described, and your dad gets taken away. And now I suppose that within pretty short order, you were now visiting with him inside a prison. Yeah. Yeah, so the, the, the sentencing to the time that he actually had to quote-unquote turn himself in was about 60 days. So they gave you time to get everything in order. So my father, when he left this one company and obviously was, was working with the federal government, knew that things weren't going to go well 
And this is actually how I got into the fitness industry. He, my father partnered with my two grandfathers who helped him purchase a failing uh, health club in downtown Philadelphia. So he was actually running that for about three or four months prior to sentencing, uh, preparing for obviously what the inevitable was going to be. So my father had the option of obviously getting taken away by the federal government himself, or he could actually turn himself in and drive himself to prison, which he selected the latter because he wanted as much time with us as possible. So we actually drove him to drop him off to federal prison. And I remember as we were driving into this federal prison, long, long driveway, again, stereotypical thing you see in the movies, long driveway covered by trees and then it opens up and then it's just nothing but a prison. And the guards were waiting for my father to escort him in. And he turns around to me as he put the car in park and obviously saying that he loved us very much. And he said, Scott, now you're the man of the house. Mm. That statement, again, stuck with me forever because I knew, you know, my mom and my sister were puddles in the car. I needed to be strong. I needed to be the man of the house. I was now going to be stepping into an entrepreneurial role as a health club owner, having no experience, one, running a business, and two, being in health and wellness. I was an athlete, but it wasn't my passion. You know, music and being a kid was was my passion. And as they took my father away, just like you said, you know, yeah, my business meetings with my father as I began to run our family business, you know, my mom would go on Saturdays, my sister and myself would go on Sundays, we went separate days, and I would bring all the paperwork and, and I would sit there, you know, my dad would catch up with my sister and then him and I would get to business. We would talk about memberships and things that are going on and and that's how we kind of kept in touch as far as the business side while I ran the business back home in Philadelphia. How far away was where he was from where you lived? About an hour and 15 minutes. How often did you visit? Every Sunday. So in the beginning, we would go as a family. So you can go on weekends and he would call once a week. But you know, my mom wanted her own time with him. So she would go on, on Saturdays. And then my sister and myself, I would drive us and we would go on Sundays to spend time with him. So it was nice having that time and we got to see, you know, see him every single week. And, um, it's just, it's just, it's just weird. You go there and you have to show your ID and sign in and then they have to call back and they have to escort him. And then there, you know, there's guards everywhere and you, it, you sit at these tables and, you know, there's guards watching you. And, and then there's like a little area where you could go outside and sit at picnic tables. And it, it just, it was a very, very strange experience to do for two and a half years. What was it like for you emotionally from, I don't know what word to use other than ego, um, being, you know, at that young age, we all have this, you know, false self that we put forward that we want everybody to see. Was that uncomfortable for you around your friends, your neighborhood, et cetera? Absolutely. And I rem it's really interesting that you asked that question because I remember after my father got sentenced and when he was awaiting to go away... I was visiting some friends of mine from growing up at uh, Westchester University just outside of Philadelphia. And we were at a party and it was a bunch of my guy friends. And my one buddy, Mike, pulled me aside and he said, listen, I saw in the paper about your dad. And this was my biggest fear was to actually have it be public where people actually read about it. I mean, it was, it was a very large case in Philadelphia. So it was published in the newspapers. and. 
I, I had the fear of being judged and it was the complete opposite of actually what happened. Uh, my buddy Mike said to me, he goes, if you need anything, just let any of us know we're here for you. And that meant the world to me because I realized I wasn't alone. And I also realized that people really did care about me. And ego-wise, I didn't really have time to even think about ego or anything else. But I, I, had, to, I had to become a man overnight. But, but again, Rob, I, I want to preface that by saying that I still had a lot of emotional maturity to actually go through because I didn't really have time to process any of this. So I had some deep-rooted resentment and anger, not even from, from this situation when he was in prison, but all of the things that transcended from that. And I, and I, I love looking back on my journey because where I'm at today in my life and my business and in my personal life, I, I, I love reflecting on my journey and realizing you know, how many arrows were thrown at me and how, no matter how hard they would hit me, I would still find a way to keep moving forward. And there's so many people in life that they get knocked down and they get afraid to, they get, afraid to get back up. And I look to my son, just like you probably look at your kids in the same way. When, when, it, when your child is learning to, to walk, they, they fall down, they get back up, they fall down, they get back up. And you're constantly reassuring them, keep trying, keep going. You know, you don't, as Tony Robbins says, you know, how many times do you give your child to fall down where you tell them, you know what, you're not going to walk anymore. Stop trying. Don't do it. It's not for you. You're not going to do it. No, you, you keep encouraging them. And that's why I love looking back on my story. And even when I look to my son now at six and a half, you know, he's always trying to, you know, move forward and, and try new things. He falls down, he cuts his knee, scrapes his elbow, he gets right back, brushes himself off and he keeps going. And anyone can do that in life. And, and that's why I love looking back on the story of how I found new ways of, of overcoming certain things in my life because everyone has that same potential to do it. Incredible. Last question on your dad. What was, take me back to the moments where he was released. Where were you and what was that like? Oh God, this is another great question. So he, after he did his two and a half years, he wasn't allowed to come back home. He actually had to go to a halfway house, which was probably honestly worse than the federal prison because every, like, you know, federal prison, it's white collar crimes. So you have a lot of malpractice. You have a lot of insurance, you know, drug dealers, that kind of stuff. You know, there was a guy in there, his nickname was Surfer Dude. And it was this young kid. He was about 22, 23. And he got caught smoking a joint on uh, in a federal park. And obviously, that's a federal crime. So he got arrested and did, did 12 months in federal prison. But when you go to a halfway house, that's everyone. That's everyone that's released from any prison. So my dad actually said it was worse being in the halfway house than there. And I remember my dad had to spend about six months in a, in a uh, halfway house. So he was allowed to come home on the weekends. And I remember... And this is so crazy how the universe works. The last weekend that he was picked up where he was able to come home and then just go on, on regular, uh, regular leave, Freebird came on by Leonard Skinner. <laughs> and I, I know it's so cliche, but, but it came on the radio. And I'm driving home with my dad and we're listening to Freebird. And this was my dad's opportunity to to rewrite his story and to to start fresh and you know 
learned from his mistakes. Some of his mistakes he learned from, some he still hasn't learned from. And, and those, are, those are definitely some stories that I can get into it either now or a later time being in the gym industry. But it, it, was, it was wonderful to have him back. But, you know, there was a, the emotional damage and scars from that experience for, you know, myself, my sister, and my mother. It, inevitably, it, it led to the demise of my, my parents' marriage, which they ended up did getting a divorce um, uh, about five and a half years after he, he got back. So it, it's, you know, they were married for 31 years and, you know, a lot of those years it was good, but, you know, the last years they weren't just because of the emotional and personal trauma from that event. And, you know, I don't blame anybody. Uh, things happen the way that they do on purpose or by accident or whatever people believe. But, you know, presently everyone is happy in healthy relationships and moving forward. But, you know, it, it's, it's a shame that things went the, the way that they did. But again, I feel things happen for a reason and on purpose and, and everyone has to learn from their lessons. Thank you for that. And thank you for your willingness to be open and to use it as a instructional tool for people. Uh, and the reason, you know, I texted you before we did this interview when I was doing my research and I was like, oh, I don't know if he's okay with this. Um, and you gave me the green light yeah. to do it. And I see why, because there's so many lessons here. And people who are listening to this, you know, I shared with you on the interview I did um, with you this morning for your uh, for, for you for uh, for your Facebook Facebook Live, and you know there were parts of my life that I wasn't honest about, and when I started getting honest about it, I started really connecting on a deeper level with people, and so you know I'm a little bit of an evangelist for being brutally honest when it will you know when the circumstances warrant it, uh, because the instruction is so powerful for people. So thank you uh thank you for taking the time to go through that and uh being, you know, open and vulnerable uh and being willing to share all of it. Absolutely. It's it's my pleasure. And again, th the best storytellers are the ones that can openly express you know, the, the greatest of times and the darkest of times because, you know, everyone in their life will go through something. And again, just like I spoke about in the beginning of this, is that a lot of people feel like they're alone in their life. And if you can share your story and it strikes a chord with someone and they can see where you are and what you did to catapult yourself to another level in your life that of self-improvement and self-awareness, uh, it can help that person. And, and that's why I always choose to be open and honest about myself and my story. So as you as you progress through different businesses, some of them worked. I know you had some ups and downs in the uh, in the world of fitness, um, owning gyms, et cetera, from personal training to owning the gym to it working to selling it to open another one that didn't work so well, et cetera. Um, the people who are listening to the show, frankly, are a mix of people who do network marketing, uh, people who have zero interest in doing network marketing. Um, so just on a high level, how did you get into what you're currently doing now, which is using LinkedIn? And I believe that you're, you, the group that you work with, is it exclusive to network marketers or is it good for, uh, your strategy is good for anybody? My strategies I've realized are now good for anyone. So I do work with, uh, 
you know, small business owners. I work with insurance brokers, real estate agents and investors, people in, in uh, the finance industry. It started off just as network marketing because obviously that was part of my career path, but it's now kind of blossomed into this uh, mega system that I can take anyone's business and the avatar and, and you know who they're looking to connect with and, and curtail that to them and show them how they can grow it. So literally anyone now could follow my teachings and my system and get the results that a lot of people get. All right. So let's talk about it. So, you know, let's say that, you know, somebody either has a small business or they have a network marketing business. Can you make this, you know, sort of like generic enough um, as we go through maybe some tips and strategies and, and you don't have to, you know, do a whole, you know, long thing, maybe three to five tips of, you know, people. Uh, and I'll, I'll be completely honest with you. I've never fully embraced LinkedIn. And a buddy of mine uh, said to me, you know, he's got a hundred million dollar company. And he said, why are you not on LinkedIn? I said, I don't even know what the hell it does. <laughs> he, laughed, <laughs> he laughed at me. He said, how can you, he said, you're on, you're, every time I open my phone, you're on Facebook or Instagram or an Insta story or something, YouTube. Why, like, why are you not doing it? I'm like, I just, like, I don't really, I don't get the, so anyway, so I wanted to have you on, but maybe you can give us some, you know, three to five tips, let's say of, you know, what are some common mistakes or how can people use it to grow their businesses? So I tell people that there's four layers to LinkedIn. There's your profile, there's searching and connecting, there is messaging, and there is providing social proof and social content. And they all have to talk the same way to everyone. So what what I can express to you is this, is that it's the way that I look at LinkedIn is like a layer cake. So if one piece of that layer cake is off, then it will never, it'll never work. So when you have your profile optimized one, then you have to define your business avatar. And there's a simple exercise that anyone that's listening to this now or later can go through. So what you want to do is you want to write down the five top qualities that you want someone to have in your business opportunity or your team if you're in network marketing or your ideal customer. So if you're in real estate, if you're a business coach, if you host masterminds, you need to make sure that you have those five qualities defined. So on a piece of paper, you would write down, I want someone that is motivated, that is driven, that is a self-starter, that is inspired, that has a high net worth, whatever it is. And when you write down those five qualities, you've clearly defined your business avatar so that when you do go on LinkedIn, you can specifically search for that type of person, the industry that they're part of, the profession that they have, and anything of that nature It'll really, really help you start to clearly define who you're supposed to connect with and obviously building a network of those that will best respond to you and what you have to offer. So when you have that business avatar and you start building this network, you start connecting with other people. The third aspect is messaging people. And and Rob, I think this is where people kind of get lost in translation of, of how to do this and what it is. Because if anyone has been on LinkedIn, 
you you get so many drunkalog messages. People send you a message and they're like, "Hey, Rob, great to connect with you. Check out this link. Watch this video. Go to this website." What did you call it? Drunkalog. Drunkalog. It's just like you know, they're just vomiting all over you. It's these like so four funny. paragraphs of of crap, so to speak, of people just literally just spilling out. You know, people have really gotten lost and don't understand the art of connection anymore. People are are becoming so socially unaware because of social media. They're becoming disconnected from it. And being a personal trainer for as long as I was, 18 years, 60,000 hours of, of, of training under my belt one-on-one with clients, I learned the art of communication. I've learned the art of human connection. And I wasn't finding that human connection to the level that I was seeking on Instagram and Facebook. And I was finding it on LinkedIn because it was a high caliber person. It was the perfect avatar for my business and what I was looking to grow and achieve. So the one, the best piece of advice that I can give you is you absolutely do not want to use LinkedIn like you do Instagram. And Facebook, it's a whole separate animal. And Gary V just did just did a podcast the other day, where he said 2019 is the year of LinkedIn. And he said, if you're looking for social proof, social engagement, and organic engagement, you need to get on LinkedIn. I mean, I've been on there for three years, and if a three-time New York Times best-selling author who specializes in social media branding is saying that LinkedIn is the place to be in 2019 and beyond then you better get on there as soon as you can. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I remember, God, I've been friends with Lewis for probably 15 years now. And I remember when, um, I remember exactly where I was. Um, I was at a conference with him. A guy named Yannick Silver was doing like an internet marketing conference. And he said, I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to be looking into this new thing called LinkedIn. And I said, what is it? And he told me about it. And he just blew up with it. It put him on the map. And you're right. He still uses LinkedIn. So um, so lesson learned. So if people want to learn more from you specifically um, and either, either hire you as a coach or get some of your work, where should they go to learn specifically about LinkedIn? Yeah, scottaaron.net. Um, and if you go to that website, again, you can download my, my free PDF. But you can also click on the top and it says schedule a 15-minute call with me. So I always do free 15-minute discovery calls to learn more about you, your business, where you're struggling, give you some tips, and tell you a little bit more about how I can potentially help you. And if you feel I'm a good fit, I can tell you how we can work together. He's a good fit, people. All right. So let's move you, on brother. to um, the uh, the second half of the show, which is the art of fulfillment. Let's see. Where do I go with you? Here's what I want to do. Are there any positions or opinions in the last few years, or it could be way back, doesn't have to be in the last few years, that you've changed your mind substantially about, um, or you change your position, and you just look at things a little bit differently, where you're like, eh, I, I don't feel the same way about that anymore? It's a good question, because I think the art of fulfillment, I, I, I think everyone brings meaning to whatever they feel something is to them. So the way that you feel about fulfillment could be completely different from my feeling of fulfillment. But in the same respect, I think emotional maturity has a lot to do with it because I think there's different points and times in our lives where we're more driven by our ego and what we're seeing around us than actually 
doing things purposefully the way that we want to do things. So um, there's a great book that I read that I still consider my Bible called The Science of Getting Rich. And it, it's a it's Waddle. author. That's Waddles, right? Wa- yep, Wallace D. Waddles. And there's a lot of great tidbits and, and tips in this book. But what I love about this book that he said most is that people tend to more often live in a world of competition and comparison instead of, instead of living in a world of creation. Mm. And when you live in a world of creation, I, I, I use the visual example of uh, a horse that, that is a, a, a racing horse. So if you ever have seen it on TV or you've been to a live event, you know, they, they put these horses in these little, you know, compartmentalized stables where they're, you know, the doors fly open, they go out running. But even more so, they're wearing these little headpieces where the horse can't look to its left or it can't look to its right to see about its competition or comparing, you know, what one horse is doing and what the other one is doing. All they can do is focus on creating their outcome by looking straight ahead. Does that make sense? So what I have found with fulfillment, it's, it's whatever it means to you. So, so looking ahead, looking in the rearview mirror does nothing for you but to keep you in your past. So as long as you're clear with your vision and what you want to achieve in your life, you will constantly feel fulfilled. And, and, and that's a big thing, Rob, right there that I, I want to I stay on really quickly. Gratitude is a feeling. Inspiration is a feeling. Happiness is a feeling. Fulfillment is a feeling. Prosperous is a feeling. Each and every day when people realize they have the choice of how they want to feel every day is one of the greatest powers that we all possess. So you get to wake up and choose how you want to feel. I love that. I love that. Let me ask you this. If you were a critic doing a review of your life so far, what would you say? Someone asked me the other day, if you could describe your life in a word, how would it be titled? And I said, resiliency. Hmm. Because there's been things that there's yeah, been... Certainly based on the story we just did about your dad. Yeah, so sure. I, I mean, if someone was to look at the timeline of my life and you know, I'll be 40 in two weeks, but you know, I've... I've, I've had to deal with being bullied and picked on. I've had to deal with my father being incarcerated for two and a half years. I, I've been twice divorced. I've, had, I've made a million dollars and then lost it two and a half years later. I've had to file for personal bankruptcy, but yet I'm still here. I'm still standing. So my, my life, the chapters are still being written. But if you were to read the first quarter or half of my life, it's inspiring in the sense that here's this guy that has never folded his hand. And I use this example is that we're all dealt hands in life and you can choose to fold them or hold them. And I can proudly say that I have not folded one hand that I've ever been dealt. I've always taken a look at the hand and tried to figure out how I can best make that work for myself to progress myself forward. Love that. Resiliency. And you certainly have that in spades. On the opposite end of the spectrum, if you could spend one month 
anywhere in the world, where would it be and why? The Amalfi Coast. Hmm. I got married there. Hmm. Good choice. And the reason why, I, I've been to the Greek Isles, which I fell in love with, um, you know, Mykonos, Santorini. I love a combination of being able to wake up and see water and beach, but at the same time being in a cultural location where there's a lot of history, where I could walk around. I like being around people. I like social environments. I love sitting outside of cafes. People watching is one of the most favorite things that me and my fiance do. Sometimes we go somewhere and we just sit and we just watch. It's the best. So... Yeah, it is. And, and, and that's the great thing is that, you know, we don't even have to be talking to each other. We can, we're, we can just be in the moment and enjoy sip a nice glass of red wine, you know, and enjoy the day. But the Amalfi Coast, to me, it, it symbolizes a lot of different things. Freedom, um, experience, living, fresh air, beach, just, just all of the things that I love most. Uh, that's where I would love to spend a long um you know, elongated amount of time. If you could only go to one restaurant before you die, where would your last meal be? Wow, that's a really good question. Well, I, I mean, my favorite, my favorite dish, like quote unquote cheat meal, uh, is chicken parmesan. I, I don't, I don't think that you can go wrong with uh, de- breaded chicken with marinara sauce and heavily loaded mozzarella cheese. It's so good. So good. And, you know, Philadelphia. So good. I was in, uh, I was in Brooklyn this weekend and I had, uh, I had exactly that at a place. The name of the restaurant is called Sundays in Brooklyn. And it was exactly that. So if, uh, I'm writing it down, you got to give it a shot right now. I'm writing (laughs) it it down. Um, what they what they do on Sunday night, it's amazing. They turn um, on at the restaurant's called Sundays in Brooklyn, but on Sundays in Brooklyn on that night, they convert the whole thing and they got the Sinatra thing going, and it's a prefix menu, and um, you know the menu is written like you know it's not written properly. It's called like gabagol, you know, all the things that yeah. you know that the Brooklyn Italians call the food. So it's kitschy, it's tongue in cheek, but the food's amazing. So you got to try it. Definitely. And then that's something, a, a cheat meal worthy of that. So, you know, there's a lot of great restaurants in, in Philadelphia. You know, there's Dante and Luigi's, there's Ralph's. Um, so Villa de Roma uh, is, is my, my, it's in my heart. That's one of my favorite Italian restaurants in South Philadelphia. So if my last meal, it was gonna, it would be the chicken parmesan from Villa de Roma in South Philadelphia. What's the one thing your soul's been calling you to do, but you just haven't gotten around to yet? My own mastermind. <sighs> I yeah. like that. Well, yeah, I know a thing or two about that, so I can. Help I know you with we that. can talk about that off air, but it's something that's been really, really speaking to me. Is uh, I'm so passionate about social media and connecting with people and showing them not the best way, but another way is that I've been thriving to be able to put together a space where I can bring people that are open to my teachings and really wanting to up-level their businesses and, and their mindsets and their impact within what they do for a profession. Uh, I've, I, I've been really feeling the need and the drive and the desire to put together my own mastermind. All right. Well, we'll talk about that. What's the one thing that you've always wanted to learn, but you just haven't? That's a, that's a really good question. 
you know, surfing was something that I always wanted to learn, but um, I'm, I'm definitely afraid of the water. So I was proud of myself for doing that. You know, I, I would say I've always had a dream. It's really funny. Nancy and I have always had a dream of opening up our own coffee shop. Uh, and I've, you know, I've had my own businesses, but I've maybe learning if I ever wanted to get back into that game again, if I ever wanted to, the proper way to, to open up a brick and mortar business that serves the need or fills the void for something that people need the right way, where it can become uh, massively profitable without robbing me of my time. Yeah. Th- th- that balance is a, is a tricky dance, isn't it? Yeah, Absolutely. All right, so we're going to move into the last five minutes of the show, which is the rapid-fire round. Answer these as quickly or as slowly as you like. It's a first thing that comes to mind rounds. What would your friends say is one of your superpowers? My genuine care for others. What's one of the things you're afraid of right now? Failing. What keeps you up at night? What keeps me up at night is... The thought that I I didn't serve those around me to my greatest potential. What do people never ask you, but you wish they did? Why did I really want to get out of personal training? What's your guilty pleasure? Red wine and chocolate. Wait, <laughs> yeah, it's funny. My my next interview is with a uh, sommelier to learn about red wine, so it's funny you brought that up. What's what's the one thing you own? and probably should throw out, but you never will. The one thing I own, uh, probably my Guitar Hero, because I, I used to love Guitar Hero, but it just sits here and I, I do nothing with it. So I probably should throw it away at this point. If you had to give a TED Talk on nothing that you're known for, nothing that you speak about, and it could be on anything that you like to do or you have a passion for or anything else at all, what would it be? Self-love. Love it. Last question. We're going to change things up a little bit. What one question would you like to ask me? What is your best advice to someone? Because I love what you said on our Facebook Live that every 90 to 100 days, you and Kim plan a trip. What is your best advice to someone that really wants to do that uh, to get started to make sure that you do take those three to four trips a year? Book the air. Okay. It's the only way around it. If you don't book, if you, our, our rule is that if you book the air, you're going. If you don't book the air, you're not. I love that. Scott, this has been freaking amazing. We had a whole love fest today. I did you, you did me. I feel like I need a cigarette now. I mean, this was so good. (laughs) Do you have any final words, suggestions, or an ask for the people that are listening? Yeah, for anyone that's listening, uh, Rob, I first wanted to honor and thank you for, again, allowing me to come on here and and share my story. And my, my simple message to people is, you know, it's something that Les Brown talks about is that no matter how many times that you can get knocked down, if you can look up, you can get up. And the simple thing that I, I want people to take away from this is that always remember that your failures will always open up the doors to your successes. So matter, no matter how much you may think or feel that you're a failure right now, within every failure is a, a formula and a solution of how to succeed. 
because there are millions of ways of how to succeed and there's only one way of how to fail and that's to quit. So as long as you don't quit on your dreams and your goals, you will absolutely create the success that you truly deserve. Dude, you did that better than Les did. Gorgeous. <laughs> thank I you. absolutely love it. And thank you so much for today. Absolutely, Rob. Love you. Grateful for you. Thank you so much for today. All right. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game or their play hard game, it would mean the world to me if you shared this podcast with them to help me get this movement out there. So if you like what you heard, head on over to iTunes, take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. So until the next episode, excuses are over. It's time to live.